Pop Culture Affidavit presents Eighty Years of DC Comics Part Twelve. Welcome to episode 12 of Pop Culture Affidavit Presents 80 Years of DC Comics, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. The purpose of this podcast miniseries is to highlight genres that DC Comics has published in its 80-year history, which fall outside of their mainstream superhero comics, as well as stories that don't often make your typical top 10 lists. I spent the last two episodes in part of a third in the science fiction realm, And now I'm going to go one shade darker and talk about horror comics. It's a genre that's been around for quite a long time, and what I'll be covering is four stories, two from classic 1970s DC horror books, and two more from recent stories published under the Vertigo banner. It's not really a comprehensive look, but I feel it'd be enough just to give us a nice taste of the genre. Along with true crime, horror is one of the most notorious genres of comic books, as it played a large and contentious role in the congressional hearings in the 1950s that were spurred by Frederick Wertham's Seduction of the Innocent. Of course, the horror com- comics in question during those hearings were mostly published by EC Comics, and were known for some rather grisly content for the time. DC's earliest foray into the horror genre was House of Mystery, which began publication in October 1951 and ran until October 1983. But otherwise, if you're thinking DC Comics and horror, you're more than likely thinking about the 1970s. You have House of Mystery, House of Secrets, and a few other titles, two of which I'll be looking at right now. The first is a comic that was simply entitled Ghosts, and which ran from 1971 to 1983. This, like most of DC's horror titles of the Bronze Age, was an anthology series that had several different writer and artist teams. I'm going to take a look at the very first story from issue number one, which is Death's Bridegroom. This book came out on July 1st, 1971, and was cover dated September-October 1971. Thank you to Mike's Amazing World for that information. The credits on this are Leo Dorfman writer and Jim Aparo was the artist. And I have no and I have to point out that on the page preceding this story there's an intro where a Grim Reaper figure is daring the readers to not believe in ghosts, for they surely exist. It's pretty much the premise of the book, at least through its earliest issues. There's a story and well now do you believe in ghosts? So our story begins, Don't be shy, lover. Everyone knows, Ron Tracy, that you're tops in your profession, a cold-blooded con man who has shattered a dozen lives. This moment is your reward, your hour of triumph, for you alone have been chosen to become Death's Bridegroom. And we see a skeletal bride telling a scared man in a tuxedo that she's waiting for him. April 1965, in the Soho District of London, a police officer and a detective investigate a suicide by overdose and mention that the note says the man who was supposedly in love with her promised to marry her and then took her life savings. The detective sees a picture of the man and says he knows who it is, Ron Tracy, who has made a career out of bilking women in this fashion. He figures that Tracy is going to be in the gambling clubs in London, and that's where they'll find him. 
However, Rod has fled with his friend Sai, who wonders while they're running away and what and and when they've made off with the thousand pounds, Ron says that it's a smart move because the cops are going to be checking every nightclub in London, so they head to Hampton. However, they don't seem to be getting anywhere, and they drive through some very thick thick fog and over a bridge he doesn't recognize. They come upon a mansion, and the butler, Burton, is rude, but a very pretty woman tells them to come in. Her name is Sharon Dean, and she says that Ron seems familiar. Although Ron says he doesn't know her, Cy gets the creeps while Ron says they can definitely take advantage of this woman. Cy asks Burton why there seems to be a huge wedding feast planned, and Burton says they're keeping it all ready for when Mr. Colby returns. It seems that years ago, Sharon was engaged to David Colby, but she was left at the altar and ordered the dining room sealed up should he return. Ron sees a picture of David Colby and realizes that with just the right hair and makeup, he could pass for Sharon's ex-fiance, and decides that this is a great opportunity to make some money. He begins posing as David Colby, sort of. He's still calling himself Ron and wines and dines Sharon. Sai, meanwhile, begins to see strange things. Sharon doesn't seem to have much of a reflection. When he drives into town, he sees the mansion dissolve in the rearview mirror, and the townsfolk tell him that the mansion is a good place to stay away from. He tries to warn Ron, but Ron doesn't listen and asks Sharon to marry him anyway. She accepts, and Ron revels in the con he's pulling. The day of the wedding arrives, and Sai continues to be freaked out, especially when cars mysteriously appear out of nowhere, and the wedding guests appear to be wearing outdated clothes. Ron says that Sai is going crazy and is only focused on the fact that he's soon going to be rich. Sai tries one more time to stop the wedding, but Ron shoves him aside and the wedding gifts, guests chase him away. Sai then goes into town to get the cops who say that there hasn't been a Dean family in the area for 50 years. They head to the mansion, but it's nothing but ruins. Sai insists there was a wedding and even picks up the bride and groom from an old wedding cake to prove his point. The police take him away laughing at him, saying, A wedding among these ruins? Who would a man find to marry around here? A ghost? A clever jest, says the narration. A pity there is only one man who can really appreciate it, but he's not laughing. To this day, Ron Tracy and his bride still haunt the Dean estate near Hampton, England. Now, I've never read the story in color. I own the Ghost Showcase, which uh, reprints issues 1 through 18 of the series in black and white. And it was a nice find at, at uh, five bucks, which is what I paid for it when I found it in discount trade bin at my LCS. In fact, I've gotten a lot of the DC showcase collections from discount trade bins. Anyway, uh, the artwork of my apparel was only a few years into his career when he was still working on the Phantom Stranger and other horror books before becoming one of the more iconic Batman artists with his work on the Brave and the Bold and then on the main Batman titles during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That, by the way, is the Batman that I more or less grew up with, or at least considered, quote, my Batman on some level during the earliest days of my collecting. I've come to appreciate other Batman artists since then, and to be honest, I think my favorite Batman artist is Marshall Rogers during the 1970s issues of Detective that he did with Steve Englehart. But this isn't about Batman. And the point I was trying to make was that uh, this is some of the first Jim Aparo art I've ever read that isn't batman related in black and white it's pretty good aparo is going for moody places and sometimes that works but other times this seems very scooby-doo the story is one of those classic be careful what you wish for stories as the con man is trying to get this rich girl's money but she turns out to be a ghost who sucks him into the world of the supernatural plus he's got the requisite skeptical friend who basically serves as a plot device for us to see what's really going on at the end it's only a nine-page story and isn't anything that made horror comics history, but like most of the stories in this Ghost Showcase edition, it's a fun, almost cheeky story, the type of thing you'd spin into an urban legend or a ghost story told around a campfire. 
And while this does sound dismissive of DC Horror's offerings in the 1970s, I'd say I probably would get away with just covering this story and moving on because, you know, they are a lot the same, to be honest with you, with the exception of, like, you know, what you get out of Swamp Thing, especially down, down the road. But I do have another tale from the 70s, and it's from 1972. It was written in pencil by Jack Kirby, with inks by Mike Royer, and it appeared in Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion, number 6. This issue came out on May 16, 1972, and was dated July-August 1972. The story is called The Psychic Bloodhound. Here's the strange, true story of Carl Burkle, real name is changed, by the way, who time and again cracked the barriers of mystery. Does his brain contain a chamber locked to all other men? So a detective and a police officer find a body in a shallow grave and comment on how a psychic told them where the body would be buried. The strange man in question is Carl Burkle, and he is the police chief's office when they return. The detective asks him how he does it, and Burkle touches him on the shoulder and says, It's by touch. He then sees a vision of what the lieutenant has seen recently, car crashes, suicide, and then asks the lieutenant if he's recently suffered a mild concussion. Lieutenant is astounded. There's a phone call, and when they get the word that the daughter of Benton Cowell, the most influential businessman in the city, has been kidnapped. Burkle leaves, and the two officers see the ransom note that has been sent. It's all hands on deck, and hours later, Cowell gets a second call from the kidnapper, who has the girl talk to her father for a moment, yelling about how scared she is. Two detectives listen in on the conversation, then head to get Carl Burkle and give him some of the things they found when the girl was kidnapped, hoping he can make some sort of psychic connection through their belongings. Burkle sees lights in a marquee, and while he can't make out all the details, he sees that the marquee says the movie is playing is called A Piece of the Action. Meanwhile, in a supermarket, the kidnapper is looking for a briefcase full of money that Cowell said he was going to leave him, and thinks to himself that he is planning on killing Cowell's daughter after he gets the loot. The cops bust in and melee, and in the melee that ensues, they shoot the kidnapper dead, which unfortunately means that they had now lost the only person who could truly tell them where Cowell's daughter is being held. The cops begin searching the body, while at the same time the two detectives pull up to the theater that Burkle described, and the psychic resonance grows with Burkle sensing the girl in the apartment building next to the theater. They head upstairs to an apartment and find her tied up on the couch. There's a happy ending, as father and daughter are reunited and Cowell gives the police all the credit. But behind the scenes of this happy ending, the men who engineered it look on, pondering deeply the mystic mechanics that should work so well. The police chief asks Burkle how he does it and whether or not he was born with the ability. Burkle says no and that it came about because of an accident when he was in World War II. And a scientist of some sort in the last panel asks, did Burkle's accident jog into an activity, a corner of the man's brain with the ability to cut across space and time? Or did he simply find a corridor that links a man with a world beyond? The narration box says, Isn't it a truth that no object on earth attains any significance to man until it feels the touch of man? How many years will pass until man's limitations erode and his full potential is realized? And what wonders shall we see then? Now, turn to page 14. Page 14 reads, Again we ask, is, the wor- is there a world outside of the one we know? The world we know comes to us through our five senses. We believe in what we can see, hear, touch, feel, and smell. Yet how do we explain those things that happen from time to time to us and to our friends that do not spring from our everyday experience? Why does a young man wake up in the middle of the night with the urgent feeling that he must phone home and talk to his father and then when he makes that call the next day only learns that his parent is seriously ill? 
All of us know such cases, and the parapsychologists, the men and women who investigate such things as ESP, mental telepathy, etc., have recorded hundreds upon hundreds of such cases. How about a ship that disappeared, such as the Marie Celeste, for instance, from floating with no one aboard of its hundreds of passengers and crew members, dishes on the table, the dinner obviously interrupted midway through the meal, and not a trace I've ever heard from again with the living soul aboard? What about the witches and devils of the past? Now, investigation reveals that many of these so-called witches were possessed by of extra ordinary ESP ability. They could look into the future and predict events, which is why men feared them. Let us examine further the story of the psychic bloodhound, which you have just read, is a story of today, 20th century of America, and took place in a big city, which we have kept nameless. Like I said, I actually just chose the story because um, I found this in a, uh, in a, I think it was a dollar bin and i was like oh this would be great for my horror episode and it's like a random horror comic for a buck you know just stuff like that's fun to find and this is a jack kirby story it's one of the more random ones from his time at dc because he was more famous for the fourth world during the early 1970s after uh, the distinguished competition lured him away from marvel as for long as i have actually been reading comics i haven't read a ton of kirby mainly because marvel is just a big blind spot and, and this is something that i do plan on rectifying at one point in my life. But I can definitely appreciate his art, and there's some great stuff here, especially in the scenes where Burkle is having his psychic visions. You can kind of tell that Kirby was having a little fun with it when he has the psychic ask the detective if he had recently gotten x-rays for a concussion, and the image of an x-rayed skull is superimposed over the guy's face. Plus, there's some dynamic-looking action in that supermarket scene. I guess if there's anything negative to say about Kirby's artwork, it's that the characters are just a little generic-looking. The cops, the damsel in distress, they look very typical. And the psychic is creepy-looking, you know, in the classic creepy-looking psychic way. But again, much like the story from Ghosts, it's, it's nothing that's going to make comics history, and I think all involved know it. It's a fun story about a psychic, the type of thing you'd see on like Unsolved Mysteries or one of those types of television shows where they profile a psychic who's used to solve cases. It serves its page as well, and overall has a sort of disposability that so many classic comics, especially of this era, tended to have. Let me take a look at the ads in this book. Early 70s stuff, there are three-wheel rumblers from Mattel. And they're tearing up Hot Wheels tracks all over America. So it's like almost like Hot Wheels motorcycles. The Daisy Rifle, which is, you'll shoot your eye. It's totally like the one in the movie. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. A Joe Weider, trainer champions since 1936. Like, you know, send away for this and we'll show you how to work out thing. So not exactly. There's a Direct Currents, which which talks about uh, unexpected Number 137, Superboy, number 188. DC Special, number 1, features the Signal Man with it his first battle with Batman and Robin. The Clock King with Green Arrow and Speedy and the Puppet Master with Green Lantern. And then Lois Lane, number 124. Carmine Infantino is explaining on the Direct Currents page why there's a price reduction for this magazine. It says, In the past, we've always been honest and we'll continue to keep our faith with our readers. Last June, we were forced to raise the price of our magazines. There was simply no way we can retain the 15 cents price and also retain the quality you've come to expect for us in the 30 plus years we've been entertaining you, printing, engraving, shipping, everything up until that, including staples, was costing us more. But we didn't want to change more and not give more. A dilemma. So we start, solved it by adding 16 extra pages to each of our comics. Sure, the material in them wasn't new. But to those were our, our good stories. 
the best we could call from our library. Well, the economic situation has changed again. In fact, it's been changing faster than a chameleon on a patchwork quilt. While we are forced to cut back, it means we ha can eliminate reprint material and produce our, reduce our price by a nickel. We will still be providing more for your money than any other comic company in the field. How? All our magazines will still soon contain additional pages of fresh excitement in story and art. No other publisher is offering you that deal. None is likely to. We offer great quantity as well as greater quality. We all th we think that makes DC Comics the best entertainment buy available now, as in the past. Honestly, that's the Julius Batman Schwartz, Joe Jimmy Olsen Orlando, Dorothy Lois Lane Wolfirk, Murray Superboy Boltonoff, Denny Wonder Woman O'Neill, Saul Production Harrison, Joe Tarzan Kubert, Jack King Kirby, E Nelson, The Fan Bridwell. P.S. Note to our subscribers: All subscriptions will be extended, so the additional issues you receive will make up for the difference between the new 20 cent price and the price at the rate you paid, which was based on the 25 cent magazines. Hodgepodge ad a Raquel. Ooh, you can do Raquel Welch pillow. Oh no, this is the honor house production corp. So just a bunch of crap you can buy from this one company in Lindbrook, New York, smoke cloud, muscles of steel, surprise package, magic card, x-ray specs, you know, the typical classics, the joys buzzer, see behind glasses, silent dog whistle, Sea Monkeys, Roger Super Skittle Bowl. Look, that's Roger Staubach, the famous football star. Yeah, and he's playing with the biggest Skittle Bowl I've ever seen. What are you doing, Roger? Just keeping in shape during the offseason with my Olympic-sized Skittle Bowl. Gee, it's gigantic. It's taller than me. Every Naturally, everything's big in Texas. But you don't have to be from Texas to have an Olympic-sized Skittle Bowl. Olympic-sized Skittle Bowl. It's like having a bowling alley in your backyard or playroom from Aurora. When it comes to bowl games, Roger Starbuck is an expert. He's a sports advisor to Aurora. Looks like a tether ball with, like, bowling pins, and you swing it around and try to hit it. It looks like you probably have fun with this for maybe 10 minutes. I'm sure Roger Starbuck played with it all the time. There, now, here's the hodgepodge ad. You could be taller. You can get muscles. You can be taller. You can buy stamps. Comics from Golden Age to Present. Passaic Book Center, 594 Main Avenue, Passaic, New Jersey. Comics book for sale from Howard D. Rogowski in Flushing, New York. Magician stuff. Comic and sci-fi convention. The San Diego West Coast Comic Con, August 4th through 6th, 1972. Wow. Robert Bell from Hop Hog, New York, is selling comics. There is a task force. This looks like just kind of army men toy with, yeah, like where you can set up battle looking things and stuff like that. Full scale models. There's the, oh, the classic insult that made a man out of Mac, the hero of the beach, Charles Atlas ad. And on the back page, dig these four new snap-tight drag construction models you build without glue, without pain, without help from Monogram and Mattel. Now I'm going to take a break and I'm coming back with two books from the Vertigo imprint. I'll be right back. Hey everybody, Magnus here. Starting in November of 2015... This is The End, a new epic mega-series coming from Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Remember those comics from the 90s where the hero died? 
got incapacitated, went insane, or otherwise got pushed out of his job. And weren't those comics awesome? I sure think so. And at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, what I believe is the definition of what is. So, join me for a fond look back at Doomsday, Nightfall, Terminal Velocity, Emerald Twilight, and The Contest. This is the end. Because even superheroes can have bad days sometimes. This is the end. Starting in November of 2015, only from twotruefreaks.com. So as I mentioned in my science fiction episode, Vertigo was never just horror. It was where DC published its Mature Readers comics. Several titles at the time were basically grandfathered into the imprint. Among them, fantasy science fiction and just plain weird stuff. You have Sandman, Swamp Thing, and Doom Patrol, for instance. Another title that had started prior to the introduction of Vertigo was John Constantine Hellblazer, a book that I've read a little bit of, having long ago borrowed a friend's copy of the first two trades after he loaned me all of Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. This series premiered in 1988, and it was issue 63 that was the first under the Vertigo banner. This one's entitled 40. It was written by Garth Ennis with art by Steve Dillon, and I'm going to give a very quick overview because it's not particularly horror-oriented, but and it seems to be a one-off issue because of a couple of storylines, and I kind of want to see that Andy and Michael cover this on Hey Kids Comics. I mean, the story is basically... John Constantine's 40th birthday. His girlfriend's out of town and his drinking buddy's unavailable, so he goes to the liquor store and buys a bottle to celebrate alone with. When he gets home, there's a surprise party full of assorted characters, among them Zatanna. Over the course of the party, John gets drunk, of course, and runs into the Phantom Stranger and Swamp Thing, concluding the night with even more whiskey and waking up to a wicked hangover and a not-too-happy girlfriend. <laughs> like I said, uh, my introduction to Constantine as a character with some of his earliest appearances. I want to say that I first saw the character in a panel of two, or Crisis on Infinite Earths, but really got to know him when I borrowed my friend's issues of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run. This is the first issue of Hellblazer that I've read in 10 or 15 years, and it's a pretty accessible issue. I actually found it to be quite funny, especially the cameos of the Phantom Stranger and Swamp Thing, as well as the scenes where Satana is getting completely wasted, or she says backwards, out of my face. Plus, the little punchline at the end is fun, is fun with John's girlfriend, Kit, coming home and saying, you've seen this state of place, we lad? You're a freaking dead man. A little levity, I guess, because I, the, the true Vertigo horror book that I wanted to get to is American Vampire number one, and that's more, a more recent book, so let's do that. This came out on March 17th, 2010. It has a May 2010 cover date, and all dates, of course, are by our courtesy of Mike's Amazing World of Comics. I'm going to take a look at the first story in this, which is titled Big Break. It was written by Scott Snyder, with art by Raphael Albuquerque. Colors are by Dave McKaig. Letters by Steve Wands. The art order was Mark Doyle. July 1925, 30 miles east of Los Angeles. While a narrator relates what it was like to see a movie for the first time, a mysterious figure drives a car into the desert and opens it to reveal emaciated bodies. He throws them into a ravine that has many, many other bodies of similar nature, and one of the bodies, a woman, barely manages to say, Please, I'm alive. We then flash back to three days ago, and our narrator, Pearl, is telling the story to her best friend, Hattie. 
They're both on a movie set dressed like with what looks like ancient Egyptian costumes. A PA yells that the star Mr. Hamilton is on the set, and the two girls swoon over him, commenting on how the woman in his arm is a dog. They're asked then to get ready and perform their scene, which is them screaming in terror. Later, the girls head home and make passing mention of a guy in a tank top and shorts who seems to be staring at them. Pearl feels uncomfortable and says he's there again, and if he's there again tomorrow, she'll report him. Hattie, Hattie wonders if he's a sex fiend, and Pearl jokingly says that he is. She'll give him Hattie's number. That night, Pearl works as a cigarette girl as a speakeasy and, f- and fends off the advances of several men. At dawn, she heads out to go to her next job, and a guy named Henry approaches her, asking for a cup of coffee. She blows him off, but he pleads his case that they could maybe talk for a while or something. She indulges him and listens to his story, which involves a band he was playing falling apart, and is riding the rails for the last six months. They flirt a little more, and he invites her to the beach for the 4th of July. Later, Pearl and Hattie are on the set of their movie, and Pearl is asked to do some blocking for the scene standing in for the lead actress. Mr. Hamilton is very nice to her and invites her to a party of a friend of his, saying that if his instincts are correct, he'll gobble her up. He hands her the address, and later that night, Hattie and Pearl head out. While Hattie gets ready, the guy who is staring at them talks to Pearl and says that he's in town because he has unfinished business with B.D. Block, the guy who's throwing the party. He says that... They should stay home, but they tell him off and leave, reminding him that they're going to call the cops tomorrow on him. The party is posh, the girls are starstruck, and Hamilton sees Pearl and leads her to a room where B.D. is waiting with several people. She tells him she's a fan, but he doesn't seem to care, and he and the men in the room grow creepier and creepier until they are revealed to be vampires and finally attack. Before I read this, I was familiar with both the writer and the artist. Scott Snyder, of course, has had a long run on Batman. Raphael Albuquerque is currently the artist on the Oni science fiction comic Letter 44. This is a great piece that reminds us that, despite what was happening in young adult literature at the time, vampires are scary, evil monsters. Snyder wraps it up in a girl looking for a big break in Hollywood story, the type of story we've seen so many times before, and it looks like he's laying the groundwork for a bigger story, possibly involving Pearl and this weird neighbor guy. I read issue two, and that's kind of, it's pretty much the case, um, and I'm, but I don't know what goes beyond there because I haven't read beyond that. I definitely will be at one point. But what Snyder does with this story is exactly what you would want out of a first issue. He makes the audience want more. The vampires are hinted at in the beginning with Pearl being thrown into a ravine, still alive, but then they don't make an appearance until the end where they are simply monsters and attack the main character. The artwork is outstanding. Albuquerque knows when to make the story darker, he knows when it should be whimsical, and he really gives all the characters personality. And in addition to Snyder's writing, makes you care about what happens to them. Plus, he makes things look scary at some points. There's a creepy vibe with the guy who's sitting and staring at them, and then Pearl is led into the room with the vampires. Albuquerque has the scene's emotions right on her face uh, as she goes from nervous about meeting a great director to terror as to what is exactly about to happen. This one's available digitally, um, and like I said, I bought issue two, and I think all of the American Vampire series are available digitally in... Um, either individual issues or just sort of a collection and you can get these in trade as well and that's it Uh, thanks for coming along with me for this quick look at DC's horror offerings I'll be back next time with another genre that Vertigo specializes in fantasy so until then thanks for listening 
and take care. Thank you for listening to 80 Years of DC Comics, a podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and Two True Freaks. All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.